This summer, Afropop Worldwide is going back to basics, telling some of the foundational stories of the global Afropop phenomenon we enjoy today. As we sing and dance to mega-hits of the moment, it's worth taking time to think about how it all started. A crucial part of the Afropop story took place in medieval Spain. At the southern tip of Spain, just eight miles of water separates Gibraltar from the continent of Africa. Gibraltar is named for Tariq Ben Ziad, a Berber general who led an army across that narrow strait in the year 711 and established the first Muslim claim on European territory. Hello, Georges Coulinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRX. This edition, the musical legacy of Al-Andalus, part one, Europe, part of our continuing Hip Deep series. At its best, Al-Andalus was a place where Muslims, Jews, and Christians shared their cultures freely, also a place where art, especially music, flourished. We start out with a performance of an 11th century Zajjal, a popular Andalusian song form. The poet Ibn Kuzman describes a night of revelry in what had to be the intellectual and artistic center of the Western world. Here's the medieval music ensemble Altramar. Yeah, la 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 la
You, I love my audience. I, the prophet, love me. I am without you joyless, so are you without me. If my fate should darken, forsooth, you must mourn me. George Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide's Look at the Legacy of Al Andalus, Medieval Moorish Spain. The fate of this Andalusian poet and all the Muslims and Jews of Spain would darken terribly in the centuries to come. But in the 11th century, Al-Andalus had reached an amazing pinnacle. From its beginnings in 711, it grew into a kingdom, then a Muslim caliphate, then a set of autonomous city-states that were gradually whittled down by invading Berbers from North Africa and ultimately Christians from Europe. In the end, it was just a single spectacular city, Granada which finally surrendered to Christian monarchs Ferdinand and Isabella in the fateful year 1492. From the fall of Granada until quite recently, Spain and the Western world mostly neglected this crucial time in Europe's history. First, there was the Spanish Inquisition with its burning of the world's greatest libraries and its expulsion of Jews, Muslims, and eventually even Moriscos. Those are Muslims who had converted to Christianity. As recently as the time of the Franco regime in the mid-20th century, Spanish history books spoke only of the Christian kingdoms in the north and ignored the Arabs, Jews, African Berbers and Moriscos who had made essential contributions to European culture. We're going to help set the Andalusian record straight on this program. We'll hear music from some extraordinary artists and ensembles dedicated to recreating the lost music of Al-Andalus. Our guide will be the author, Dwight Reynolds, a professor at the University of California in Santa Barbara. He's currently living in Granada, Spain, researching Andalusian music, and he spoke with us from a studio in Madrid. Our conversation began with history. In the early centuries of Al-Andalus, the center of culture and politics was the city of Córdoba, well, in that first century, Cordoba moves from being literally the Wild West. It's the frontier state of the expanding Islamic empire. So it's really sort of an outpost. It's a provincial capital. The people who are appointed as governors there are actually Arabs from the east. They probably did not look forward to being stationed <laughs> so far away from home and uh, in the far, far west. And these governors oftentimes only served a couple of years. But that soon changed with the ascent of Abdelrahman I, the sole survivor of the Umayyad dynasty in Damascus. In the turbulent years that followed the death of the Prophet Muhammad, the Umayyads took control of his domain, launching Islam's vigorous expansion around the world. But in 750, the Umayyad clan was wiped out by the ascendant Abbasids. 
one young prince escaped and fled to North Africa, home of his Berber mother, and he later resurfaced as the governor of Al-Andalus. From the city of Cordoba, Abd al-Rahman and his descendants built mosques and libraries and lured the greatest scholars, poets, and musicians from the East to create a society such as the world had never seen. For the rest of Europe, of course, this was the Dark Ages, a time of widespread deprivation and warfare. Cordoba was the most exciting intellectual center in all of the Western world. It was probably the biggest city in all of Europe. It certainly had the largest libraries. It had a level of learning, both scientific and literary, uh, that was absolutely astonishing. If we think about the year 1000, a century before the troubadours began to write their poems and sing their songs, the person who is Pope in the year 1000 is Pope Sylvester. Now, Pope Sylvester was actually originally from Oriac, which is in the heart of the troubadour country. He had gone as a young man to Barcelona to study there, and from there he went south and studied in Cordoba and Sevilla. So he almost certainly knew Arabic. He studied mathematics, he studied the sciences, and he studied mechanics. Whether it's a legend or not, he is accredited with having introduced Arabic numerals and the decimal system to Europe. He is credited with having invented the pendulum clock and introducing all forms of higher math into Europe he actually becomes Pope. So in the year 1000, the Pope spoke Arabic. During those early centuries, there was a lot of back and forth between Al-Andalus and Eastern cultural centers like Baghdad, Damascus, and Medina. The most famous story is that of Ziryab, or Blackbird, a reference to the man's dark skin and fabulous singing voice. There are so many stories about this guy, and we don't know which are true. Ziria probably had African ancestry. Legend has it he fled the court in Baghdad after being threatened by a jealous and less talented musical mentor. Ziria is credited with introducing everything from haute cuisine to toothpaste and deodorant to European society, Dwight Reynolds. He arrives in Cordoba and makes a tremendous hit. He arrives with everything that is chic and everything that is fashionable from the East. He has a sort of aura of the cosmopolitan, his clothes are different, his hairstyle is different, and as soon as he arrives, everyone in the Cordoban court begins to copy him. Before the arrival of Ziriab, all the people in Al-Andalus in the Cordoban court wore their hair parted in the middle and hung down loose down to the shoulders, men and women. Ziriab had his hair cut with bangs down to his eyebrows and cut across his forehead, and hair pulled back with little spit curls coming out from the sides of his ears. For Star Trek fans, it's very clear that the Andalusis before the arrival of Ziriab were Klingons and that they quickly adopted um, the Romulan hairstyle with the arrival of Ziriab. <laughs> the complex musical suite called Nauba in Al-Andalus and Nuba, where it now survives in North Africa, might be Ziriab's greatest musical legacy. Here's a modern performance taken from the Nuba Ram Almaya, performed by the Spanish group Calamus.
That's an Andalusian muwasha, or ring song performed by Calamus on Afropop Worldwide's imaginative journey through the legacy of Al-Andalus in Europe. Georges Collinet with you. Our man in Spain, Dwight Reynolds, says that the Arab poetic forms of Al-Andalus, the classical muwasha, and the more colloquial zajar, were part of a literary revolution. Amazingly, the idea of rhyming words at the ends of poetic lines was virtually non-existent in Greek, Latin, Hebrew, Germanic, or even Aramaic poetry, but it had long been a feature in Arabic poetry. And once it emerged in these popular Andalusian song forms, poets in Europe took notice. Very quickly, they began adding all sorts of rhymes as decorations, and suddenly you have these things that have complex rhymes where almost every part of a sentence, every few words in a verse, is part of a rhyme scheme. And this just takes the world by storm. It becomes extremely popular in Al-Andalus, it spreads across North Africa, it spreads to the Eastern Mediterranean, and this type of singing, the Mwashach singing and Zajil singing, has lived all the way to the present in all of these different countries. In the early centuries of Al-Andalus, nearly everyone, including many Christians and virtually all Jews, spoke Arabic, in part because of its literary attractions. A 9th century bishop of Cordoba lamented the fact that young Christians in the city could scarcely write a letter in Latin, but were becoming expert at writing poetry in Arabic. As for the Jews in Andalusia, they had lived on the Iberian Peninsula long before the Arabs came. The Visigoths, who were in charge just before that, oppressed the Jews mercilessly. That's one reason why Al-Andalus marked a time of great closeness between Jews and Muslims. Jews enjoyed trusted positions in Andalusian courts and were often emissaries to Christian kingdoms in matters of commerce and diplomacy. Poets who did write in Hebrew also imitated the Arab forms, creating a golden age of Hebrew poetry. The Hebrew word for Spain was Sepharad, 
and the Andalusian Jews who scattered around the world after the expulsion in 1492 are known to this day as Sephardim. You can read more about Andalusian poetry, the Sephardim, and much more in our complete interview with Dwight Reynolds and see an extensive discography of Andalusian music on our website, afropop.org. Here's an excerpt from a muasha written and sung in Hebrew sometime around 1100 and performed here by an Indiana-based group called Altramar. the mostly American musicians of Altramar performing an Arab song form from medieval Spain composed and sung in Hebrew. Wow, that's deep. I'm Georges Collinet and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX. 
This is probably a good time to point out that performing Andalusian music today is anything but an exact science. Here is our Andalusian music expert, Dwight Reynolds. One of the eternally frustrating aspects of studying Andalusian music is that although we have the words of the songs from the medieval period, we don't have the melodies. The music was never written down. So the only melodies that we have are those that were passed on orally and exist in the modern tradition. For centuries, Western musicians, like many historians, neglected Andalusia. Then in the 1950s, the early music movement began. The idea was to use historical sources and try to perform older European music as it was played in its time. That opened the door. But it was really only in the 1980s and 90s that ensembles began trying to piece together performances of Andalusian music. These groups sometimes combine texts from medieval Spain with melodies preserved in North Africa. In this performance by Begoña Olavide with the group Mudejar, the melody comes from a 15th century Christian transcription where it was identified as Arab. <laughs> There's a strong dose of imagination in these performances. Where history leaves blanks, musicians find ways to fill them. Andalusian history offers much to inspire the imagination. Take the Kian, for example, the famous singing slave girls who were plentiful in medieval Spain. The Kian are female vocalists. They are professionals, they are trained, They are also, for the most part, slaves, at least in the sense that they are owned by someone. Children and teenagers would be taken into the system, trained in singing, trained in dancing, trained in musical instruments, and those especially who had talent were then turned around and sold in very specialized markets for enormous prices. We have a text that tells us about uh, the selling of female vocalists in Al-Andalus in the Middle Ages and said that each one had a certificate that actually said exactly what her talents were and how many songs and melodies she knew, how many different musical instruments she knew. And those who were quite good and who acquired a certain amount of fame eventually could acquire enough money to buy their own freedom. But many others actually chose to remain within a household. Obviously, the households who could afford these types of entertainments were quite wealthy. And rather than be alone and on the streets trying to support oneself by performing in various unregulated ways, it was a far better life to be a star performer in a princely house or the house of a nobleman or the house of at least a rich family where you would be taken care of even in your old age. How did Arab music influence Christian Europe? Well, one way was through the Kian, these prized singing girls. Many Kian found their way into Christian courts to the north of Andalusia. 
Political marriages between Muslim and Christian noble families were common, and a singing girl made an excellent wedding gift. Battles and sieges were also common in medieval Spain, and Christian victors were known to seize Kian as part of their booty. In one particularly interesting exchange, there was a battle for a small city in the north of Spain at that time held by the Muslims called Brabastro. This takes place in 1064. Among the major Christian nobles fighting in this battle was William VIII of Aquitaine. And he, being one of the major nobles, would have received a share of the booty, if you will, the prize, after the city actually fell. The Christian sources tell us that nearly 2,000 female slaves and female vocalists or singing girls were captured in that battle. So it's quite probable that William VIII actually went home with a number of these singing girls, these professional female vocalists, as part of his share of the booty after this battle. What's important is that he's not only William VIII of Aquitaine, but he is the father of William IX, who is typically referred to as the first troubadour. Since his father died when he was still a teenager, during his youth, he was actually the master of a household that had professional female Arab vocalists from the Battle of Barbastro. The music, and especially the rich poetry of the wandering troubadours, influenced much of what was to come in European culture. In many ways, troubadours paved the road to the Renaissance, so it's no surprise there are intense debates about the possible influences of Arab Andalusia on the tradition, especially in France and Italy. For more on that, and on the way Arabic romantic poetry may have influenced the troubadour's poetry of courtly love, read our complete interview with Dwight Reynolds at www.afropop.org. Musical performances of troubadour songs reflect the experience and agendas of the musicians doing the performing. Some use no instruments at all, believing that's the way many troubadours performed. Let's listen to three excerpts. The first, by Sequentia, interprets a troubadour song in light of English and German vocal traditions. The second, by Sonus, introduces the oud, but playing in the manner of its descendant, the European lute. And the third, by Ensemble Unicorn, sets a troubadour song to an Arab rhythm.
Troubadour song with an Arab beat. By the way, that's a rhythm you find among today's Arab musicians from Detroit to Damascus. Georges Collinet here with the legacy of Al-Andalus in European music on Afropop Worldwide. The most obvious and undeniable contribution of Arab culture to Europe is instruments. The list is long. Timpanis, for instance, despite their Latin name, trace back to Arab and Berber military kettle drums mounted on horses marching into battle. Also introduced via Al-Andalus were trumpets, reed instruments, and of course, many string instruments, including the medieval zither called psaltery, which derives from the Arab kanun. Probably the most important single instrument to move from Arab culture into European culture was the lute, uh, which in all of the European languages is called by names that derive from the Arabic word al-oud, which means the wooden instrument.
the loot passes from southern Spain into northern Spain. It spreads throughout Europe. It becomes one of the major instruments all the way through the Renaissance. And it develops in Europe. It takes on new forms. It has many more strings. And there are a number of critical changes, such as the additions of frets, because European music is played with chords, and Arabic music is played with a single melodic line and without chords, and of course the different tuning systems. But the lute has major impact on European instruments. Dwight Reynolds also points to the importance of the rebab, the first bowed instrument played in Europe and so the ancestor of a whole family of European instruments, including the viola, the violin, and the cello. It seems so natural to us to think that string instruments can be either plucked or bowed. But in fact, we don't have bowed instruments until sometime probably around the 8th century. And it's an idea that begins in Central Asia and spreads out in several different directions and comes down into the Middle East and reach Europe through two different passages. The Eastern Passage is through the Byzantine Empire and through the Balkans, but the most important for Western music is really through the Iberian Peninsula, through Spain, that is, and then influencing France and Italy and other countries. Along with the lute and the rebab, there are a number of types of flutes. There are several different types of drums. There are trumpets. In fact, it's very impressive that there are instruments of all of the different instrument types that move from Arab culture in the south into the Christian culture of the north. Of all the surviving music from medieval Spain, the greatest may be a collection of songs written in the 13th century court of Christian King Alfonso X. Alfonso was the son of a crusader, and he inherited the kingdoms of Castile and Leon. He ruled from Toledo, a city his ancestor Alfonso VI had seized from the Muslims in 1085. Toledo ended up being this fascinating mixing of cultures. From the 11th century through to the time of Alfonso X, there were certainly communities of all three religions, that is Muslims, Christians, and Jews. Before Alfonso VI actually captured Toledo, He was in the political outs in his kingdom, and he took refuge in Toledo and lived under Muslim patronage for several years before then going back to become the king of his own kingdom and eventually negotiating the turnover of Toledo. Alfonso X was a man of culture, remembered today as El Sabio, the Wise. He made a point of keeping Muslim and Jewish musicians in his court. And he either composed or presided over the composition of 400 songs in praise of the Virgin Mary. These are the famous Cantigas de Santa Maria. It's a rich and wonderful songbook. It has a notation system that we can actually understand. But even more so, it has a series of beautifully crafted miniatures, that is, little paintings painted on the various different pages, that give us some of the best images we have of medieval musical instruments and quite famously presents several images of Moors and Christians performing together. You can see some of those miniatures on our website, afropop.org. Recent decades have produced recordings of the Cantigas de Santa Maria using a wide spectrum of interpretive styles. Let's start with the European group Sequencia. The Cantigas, like most Andalusian music, were probably sung by a single voice but Sequentia brings ideas from Northern European liturgical music to their performance. The 
Now let's hear the same cantiga performed as an instrumental by Alla Francesca. This group uses medieval instruments, including the bowed rebab and the bagpipe called cornemuse. The group Antequera, under Johannet Somer, uses Arabic instrumentation on their recording of the Cantigas. This one features oud, rebab, frame drum, and a drone. Antequera with an Arab tinge take, one of the Canticas de Santa Maria. The most strongly Arab performances of Andalusian music today come from Arabic-speaking countries in North Africa and the Middle East. Since medieval times, Andalusian music has been played continuously as a living genre in many of these countries. We'll dig deeply into that on an upcoming program, The Legacy of Andalusia, Part 2. As a preview, here's a taste from the Andalusian Orchestra of Fez. Support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts that believes a great nation deserves great art and from PRX member stations across the U.S. And please, remember to support your public radio station. 
Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Womex, the showcase, conference, and marketplace for world and roots music, October 25th to the 29th in Galicia, Spain. More information at womex.com. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Post Mambo. If you want to travel to Spain in 2024 and hear the beautiful music of Andalusia live, our colleague Ned Sublet is leading a two-week music tour February 27th to March 12, 2024. For more details, send an email to info at postmambo, that's P-O-S-T-M-A-M-B-O dot com. That's info at postmambo.com. So you may ask, what about flamenco? Where does Spain's most famous music fit into the story of Al-Andalus? Well, Dwight Reynolds says that there are many intriguing resemblances between flamenco and North African and Mediterranean musical styles. We'll have much more to say about that on an upcoming program. My goodness, what a voice. That's Diego El Cigala, a king of the Spanish flamenco scene today. Dwight Reynolds says that when today's writers, scholars and musicians revisit the cultural history of Andalusia, we have to consider their motivations. Perhaps the most important thing to realize is that this battle for Al-Andalus, about what type of society Al-Andalus was, was it tolerant or was it not? Were the expulsions necessary or were they not? That is a battle of modern politics. Both sides are motivated primarily by modern political considerations and that in some sense we are using the medieval history of Spain to argue out now the relationship between Western Christianity and Middle Eastern and Eastern Islam. Those who are promoting a vision of Al-Andalus as a tolerant, paradisical society that has been lost are clearly those people who see the possibilities of living together, of convivencia, now and in the future. And those people who go back to it, and there are a number of conservative commentators who go back to that period of time and reject the idea entirely and point out the level of violence and the various different pogroms and the expulsions, etc., are precisely those people who think at this moment and in the future, convivencia or living together with different cultures or in the larger sense of the West versus Islam, these are the people precisely who think that is not possible. Wherever we stand, most of us would agree it's a good thing that the history and music of Andalusia are at last getting some attention. We will return to this subject and to Dwight Reynolds to look at Andalusia from the North African perspective. In the meantime, we leave you with new music from a contemporary Spanish group deeply committed to the legacy of Al-Andalus. Those same eight miles of water still separate Spain from Africa. And centuries after the first Muslim invaders crossed those waters, radio broadcast signals have been making the same trip, inspiring these musicians to form a band. From their 2003 live release, Fiebre, here's Radio Tarifa. (laughs) 
Your Tarifa wrapping up Afro Pop Worldwide's look at the musical legacy of Al Andalus in Europe. 
be sure to visit our website, afropop.org, to read more about Andalusia and see beautiful photographs related to this program. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research, co-production for this program by Banning Air. Special thanks to program advisors Dwight Reynolds in Granada and Anastasia Chukas in New York and to Lara Lopez in Madrid. Our chief audio engineer is Michael Jones. Banning Air and Cece Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Mukwai Wabeisiolwe. And I'm Georges Collinet.